Hello, I'm Phil Guest, and thank you for joining me for this next episode of Behind Startup Lines. I started this project to talk to founders, operators, and investors about their experiences of building new businesses, as much to help me learn how I could be more useful to the teams I support. But what's become clear in doing so is that success comes from a coordinated effort of a small group of highly passionate individuals who believe in solving very real customer problems. Not only that, but they also have to believe in each other's capability to make a difference. This is why I enjoy the challenging aspects of building new businesses and collaborating with solution-orientated people just as committed to achieving game-changing results as I am. Behind Startup Lines also gives me an opportunity to talk to my friends about their personal startup journeys, and this episode is a perfect example of that. My guest today is Matthew Richards, Head of Product at DiffBlue. As a brilliant product lead, he's responsible for shaping a groundbreaking machine learning product that was way ahead of its time. We'll hear about Matt and his early days as an entrepreneur at Cisco, and get a measure of a man who can't sit idly by while people are struggling. We'll go on to explore early product strategy and discuss how to align your sales and marketing teams with your product. He also shares insights on the benefits of your technical team talking to early users and later customers to help shape the product culture of your business. Additionally, we'll delve into the benefits of integrating sales, marketing, and product teams within a go-to-market framework to cultivate a product-market-fit mindset, which will significantly enhance your chances of success. From the moment we met, Matt and I hit it off. He's been a fantastic teacher and mentor for me on my journey as a product builder, and in doing so has become a good friend. I am delighted that he agreed to speak with me today. So without further ado, Let's dive in. Matthew, welcome uh, to Behind Startup Lines. I'm really delighted we've got an opportunity to chat about product today because the relationship between the commercial team and the product team, it it can be a winning combination. But so often in my experience of working with early stage companies, um, they sit in two completely different silos. They talk different languages. They really don't cooperate as much as they should. And I'm going to explore a lot of stuff that we've talked about over the last couple of years of knowing each other. And it's an absolute delight for you to join us today. Why don't we kick off with you telling us a bit about uh, your background, your journey so far and what you're doing over at DiffBlue? Sure. Well, thanks very much for having me. Um, I'm head of product at DiffBlue. I'm a product guy through and through. I started off um, back nearly 20 years ago as a C++ developer. I started my first company at the age of 16. Um, I remember doing my A-levels and having to run out of of class to go fix a client's network. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a nerd through and through. Um, C++ developer by trade, um, spent a bit of time running my own company then. 10 years at Cisco, which was great. That was 10 years of just moving around. Um, all over the company, um, building a, a reputation as someone who solves problems, someone who goes into to parts of the business that uh, maybe there's there's quality problems, engineering problems, there's product opportunities. So I tried everything. At Cisco was absolutely great ten years, and then yeah, I'm at Diff Blue now here in Oxford, where um, we're a company who um, use AI, and and AI is. <laughs> 
I, I always worry about saying AI. We use a different form of AI to like chat GPT, et cetera. Um, we use a, 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 an AI called reinforcement learning to write code. And but I feel the need to explain that because so many people, they, they hear AI for code and they just think chat GPT, Google Copilot, uh, sorry, GitHub Copilot, and they, um, that they have this, this perception of what it is, but we use a, a, a completely different mathematical model. And so, yeah, I, I, I've been there for, coming up to four years now, completely different sort of company, different um, sort of problem, uh, but I still treat it as, as the same as I did at big old Cisco. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm here to bring engineering and business together and solve the impossible problems. Well, we're going to explore the whole AI impact because it's certainly one of the areas I'd like to chat about. I mean, you were working on machine learning and, and reinforcement learning before AI became the hot property that it is today. So we'll explore that both in terms of where it fits into product, but I think also from a commercial perspective about how the market's reacting and what, what the market is asking for. But it sounds like your time at Cisco, you were very much an entrepreneur if you were troubleshooting and moving around teams um and that's a really interesting role in its own right because you were clearly geared to create and invent and and solve problems and yet you were working for a really big company how did cisco make that opportunity even work for you where you can move around the teams and solve different problems and what sort of problems were you looking to solve that's a, that's a really really good question how how did Cisco fit for me there. I I've always been the sort of person who just wants to to get dirty and solve those things that people say can't be done or um, people are scared of the risk of of doing something. I I have a very I, I like to think pragmatic approach to risk. I I understand how bad things can get. So often when people say oh we can't do that or or that's not possible, I that's just that that's just bait for me. Um, so when I first started at Cisco, I I very quickly jumped on those those nasty problems that other people um, weren't solving. And I I first of all got that name as someone who executes, who delivers, just someone who gets shit done. And that that's what I am. Just gets get it done. Um, so I ended up being being chosen. People kept coming to me and being like. Hey, we've got this this super big problem. Um, who who can solve that? Who can we put on this? And people started um, started saying my name. And, it, and it's not just about me. It was me and my team. And I had I had a great team that I hired in the first few years of being at Cisco. And 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 I I was with that team all the way until the end. Um, and we just moved around and, and got put into to um, into into places where people. Um, saw that our skill set of a mixture of being hardcore technical but also that project management that product management that that business acumen all comes together um so cisco created that opportunity really by being a sort of organization that isn't scared to find the right people rather than just use the people who whose job titles say you should do it there's never my job title to do half of these things but they they came for me and for the team i work with and of course, that entrepreneurial spirit really came to its fore uh, in, I mean, you were there when COVID broke 
uh, you did some pretty amazing stuff supported by the business that nobody knows about. I don't know if you'd be happy sharing the story about how you went off and, and built a PPE factory uh, to, to support what was happening at the time. Because I think it just tells us a bit about you as an individual, about how you tackle problems and how that's very transla- transferable to building early stage companies like DiffBlue. Sure. So yeah, I have loads of, of other projects outside of work. I mean, I'm sat here in my my uh, my workshop. I've got 3D printers and, and CNC machines and stuff around me, and I, I I love building things. And yeah, it was really a case of when when COVID kicked off that back in um, it was in uh, February March time we started to realize that there was a lack of PPE and a lot of people were, were ended up sat at home working from home asking how do I uh, how can I help? And a lot of people around me were saying, how can, how can we help? And that was great language because people um, that I worked with, there are those sorts of people that said, how can we, what can we do? And we were talking about PPE and, and we were like, this is a great opportunity for 3D printing and for the sort of engineering that, that a lot of us are, are into. And, and um, this great chap, Alex Gibson, um, runs a 3D printing company in Reading, a good friend of mine. He was like, I've got a load of 3D printers. And I was like, well, I'm sure loads of other people have. Like, could we do this? And and it grew from just this idea. It was on a Saturday night. The Sunday morning, I rang the head of Cisco Legal. So this is reports to the CEO of Cisco. I don't know the guy, but I was just like, sod it. Let's, let's go for it. I spoke to him. Uh, he's based in New York. And he was just like, yeah, just give me a minute. And he actually woke up Chuck Robbins, who's the CEO of Cisco, living in California. He woke him up at like 6, 7 a.m. on a Sunday morning and was just like, yeah, this is a bit of a, a, a curveball, but are you cool with this? And and he got back in touch with me and he said like, yeah, Chuck was like, let's do it. I don't know these guys. I've never met them. Chuck is yeah. CEO of a 70,000 person uh, multi-billion dollar organization. But it was that license that we got. And then that just spread like wildfire. The head of Cisco UK was just like, what do you need? The, the CSR team at Cisco, Catherine Badley and, and, and her org just jumped on it. And we built a factory. We turned a, the ground floor of, of a Cisco site into a PPE factory. We had buses, um, literally actual pedestrian buses coming uh, full of 3D printers from all over the south of the, the country. And we, we laid them all out. We built all the protocols all the safety all the the our own ppe to keep us safe because we we we, um we've got to protect each other and experts from from all different fields came together and yeah we we ran 24 hours a day i slept on the floor of of the uh the factory um for for months and and churned out thousands of of um ppe items face shields uh, really um uh, yeah i mean it was it was it was the highlight of my entire career, if I'm honest. That's the of everything I've ever done. That that's the thing I always smile most about. But what people don't know is how Cisco supported that because you initiated, you drove it, you made it happen. But they have no idea that a big company like Cisco, you know, which was competing with with tools and materials to be able to do this, how much they supported it. I mean, they said, "Yeah, this is just something we got to do," and they got fully behind it, didn't they? Yeah, definitely. And and it would have been easy for them to just throw money at it. 
and and they they gave us a budget. Yes. It wasn't extreme at all, but it was it was the people commitment, and it was that giving people the license to be involved. Um, I, I remember like we we were washing our um, these overalls we had to wear because we had to be in a, in a fairly sterile environment. We had to wash these overalls, and I was driving to the laundrette um, in Reading every day twice a day actually to drop off these overalls and get them washed and one day this this uh, facilities manager just came up to me with a big smile on his face and he said matt go upstairs went upstairs to the kitchen and they'd ripped out all of the fridges and they'd put in washing machines and i mean that's that is such a in some ways a small thing but the significance of that it was just people thought how can i contribute how can i help these people get their job done and the smile on his face was because he was part of that and he was part of that journey and people in we had we ran shifts of four people uh um eight hours on at a time 24 hours a day and the the mix of people who were on those shifts it was everyone from like uh interns and people on our apprenticeship program but also product managers heads of engineering um marketing people sales people all just wanted to to feel valuable and it was that it was that culture that cisco had always instilled it wasn't a new thing when COVID came along. The culture was already yes. there, but that license we got, people were just um, people were just so happy to, to A, be part of it, and B, feel supported in being part of it. It's an amazing story. And I know that you've got many other projects, many other hobbies that you do. And, and you know, we could talk all day about that. But let's, let's focus more on how that translates then into your job today and the work that you do across the organization uh, on the product side. So perhaps you could talk a little bit, first of all, about the origins of this product role, because what we want to try and understand is where does this sit in relation to people with hands on keyboards coding and people marketing and people selling the product? Um, is the product piece always been there or is it something that's really emerged over the last sort of 10 years? So product management has, has always really been there. The product manager has traditionally been the, the business guy who, who tells people what to do with the product. And it's, um, I, I always remember product managers when I first started as as being business people. Um, the term product owner very much became popular from the agile world and from scrum methodology within engineering. Um, and, and product owners became kind of the people who work for the product manager. They don't wear the suits. They're the ones that wear the t-shirt and, and jeans. They're the ones who actually do the, the interaction with engineering. And, and in some ways it, in a lot of organizations, it became a, a junior job title to be a, a product owner. It was for aspirational product managers. But um, a, a great mentor of mine, uh, Michael McNally, taught me that a product owner is a is an owner. This person owns the product as if it was their own product, as if it was their cash, their baby that, that they're accountable for end to end. So... As, as a product manager, I, I, I am a product owner and a product manager. Um, and, and we could go into the, those definitions, but really I own the product. And product ownership is all about being accountable for the product in every possible sense, as if it was your own, uh, as if it was your own personal investment. So being happy about the product when you should be happy, but being embarrassed when the product is not performing well. Um, when customers are 
coming to you with problems, you, you have to take that ownership as if it was your own kid who got in trouble at school. You've got to defend that product. So product management has always been there as this business person who who is accountable for the product. But I, I ref, really refer to myself day to day as I'm a product owner. It's my product that I'm dependent on so many people to get right, but I'm responsible for it. What have you seen the uh, implication then of product being owned by technology? So when you have maybe more of an engineering uh, CTO responsible for product. And the reason I ask this question is early stage businesses don't have the luxury sometimes or the capital to be able to employ different people for these roles. But I'm interested in, first of all, you know, should they be bringing product owners early, but also what the implication is of having your technical team owning the product? Sure. So, so you can't just bring in someone with a product owner job title. Like that, they have to have that. They have to own it. And it doesn't have to be a product manager who who feels that ownership. It's, it, it's not about the, the the role. It's a or the title. It's about someone owning that product and being accountable for it so um for example at diff blue before i joined really the the our cto um i I would say owned the product was the one accountable for it and our cto is absolutely fantastic because he's got peter schrammel amazing most technical guy you'll ever meet but also has got one hell of an entrepreneurial uh head on his shoulders um, he can think like a businessman. He can think like um, a salesperson. He can understand what users want, but also get into the, the weeds. So actually, in in that sense, the CTO can be the product owner, but they've got to look at um, the product through not just the technology lens, but through the the the, um, the business lens and the go to market lens and the customer satisfaction lens. So. In an engineering-led organization, early-stage startups where you, you can't bring in a, a head of product, someone who can take ownership, you've got to still have someone who owns the product and talks about the product um, holistically. Otherwise, the, a gap forms between the business and, and, and technical people where things slip through that gap people don't feel accountable for certain aspects of the product because oh that that's not me that's that's the engineering folks or that's not me that's the sales uh, or the the go-to-market team who need to deal with that so yeah it's it's a very easy one to solve it's identifying who is the the person in your engineering org who really can have that ownership um and and be end-to-end accountable Okay, so let's talk a bit about when the time is right to take a product to market. You know, uh, at what point do you have to be confident the product does what it says and solves the problem that you set out to solve before you go out there and start really giving customers an opportunity to buy it? So you, you've got to get out there early. You've got to get it out there as early as possible. Um, with whatever you have and and you don't you're not necessarily looking to sell it in those early days you don't have to put a price tag on it at that point but you've got to have your product has to be out there for people to be exercising you can end up in this trap where you keep building and you keep building and you keep building you keep saying it's not ready yet it's not ready yet and i I see this behavior from from very engineering-led organizations because they're protective over it 
but the problem is you're not getting that that feedback of do the market actually want this thing and the language that the team use they're not talking about how the users are using it they're talking about oh people might do this or they might do this and might is just not good enough right. in in a startup so getting out there early, testing the market, and of course that means that you've got to go and talk to customers uh, as a product. And if that's the CTO that's leading the product in the early days, they can't do that in a bubble. They've got to get out there and talk to customers. Is is that your advice? Yeah, definitely. You've you've got to find some early users. Um, and and, I, and and in those days, early days, it's users. It, it's not customers yet at that point. It's just people to try your your technology as a product, though, not trying this piece of cool tech, but you've got to package it. So that first increment, so we talk a lot about incremental delivery, um, that first increment of your product needs to feel look like a product, even if it's very small. Um, so it's about getting that first increment out there and watching your users use it, understand what they're doing um understanding the the jobs that they have to do so we all have jobs to do every day um software developers in my world they have a job to do no matter what your your company does you have your your users your customers have have jobs to be done so we have to understand that we have to to watch them do their job and understand how is our product going to help them in that um so yeah it's about knowing your your users and your customers intimately not just on paper but going out sitting with them understanding them getting to know them as people getting to know their motivations um why do they have this job to do what are the tasks within that job what do they like about it what do they not like about it what's the emotional driver behind doing it in a certain way um what 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 do they um what do they say verbally that is an articulation of some very subtle complex problem with the product so people will say things like oh this is um oh god it doesn't work what they mean is there's some some very nuanced subtle thing that just really grinds their gears so getting that understanding those 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 ticks that help us identify when things are going well when's a, when are things going bad so yeah it's all about understanding and you, as a as the product owner no one has to know that better than you. And I can see that in early days of building these products, if it's a very complex uh, engineered based product, when you're sitting there with the people that you deal with at DiffBlue, you're sitting there with the developers, you're sitting there with the people who are leading the teams, they're engineers and you understand their role. So it's a very technical discussion. But for those products that are not so technical and yet the CTO or the product lead is still having conversations with customers. I mean, that must be a, a leap for them to be comfortable with, that they're actually talking to people that are in not a technical sense in the same way that you are in a more sophisticated technical product. What impact does that have on the conversation? So, so let, let's just look at that the other way around. What if you didn't talk to your users? I mean, that's, that there's no other field where the people designing and building things are not watching their users that their customers using the product. Why would that be any different in tech? And sometimes in tech, I, I, I have to check myself. I'm like, wait a minute, how how can these people not be interacting with their users? It implies that if you if you if you're not doing that, it implies that you know everything there is to know about your users and your customers and your buyer, and there is yes. no value that they can give you. 
and that that's that's not the case um so so number one is is we don't know everything and the amount that i learn every single day and, and i love it the best the best the most exciting days for me are where I look back at a decision I made a few months ago and I go, wow, that was a, that was the wrong decision. That's great. I love discovering where I've made the wrong decisions. I do it all the time because that's an opportunity to make the product better. And, and that, that's, um, but for the, the conversations as we, in, in the example of if it's a CTO or if it's uh, your first product manager talking to your customers, they then start talking internally about what users want, what users do. That they stop talking about the 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 might people might do this, they might do that too. This is what I saw someone do. And then what you find is the engineers start talking about customers as well. I love it when our engineers are talking and I hear a few of them having a chat about a feature and they're talking about customers and they're mentioning customer names and sometimes specific people within customers. And that's great. They're so connected to how the product's going to be used. Um, and that that just lights me up because now they're product owners as well. That They are also, they right. are taking and feeling ownership over what they're building. It's not just this uh, ethereal uh, thing on a backlog somewhere in Jira that, they, uh, that, that they're never going to see the use of. How do you decide then, obviously this feedback and talking to customers is crucial and customers will have views about features that they want to add or things they want the products to be able to do. How do you decide which of those are worth pursuing? Because there's a lot of good ideas that will come from these discussions. doesn't mean they're right for your product. Yeah, and then that's, that's the hardest part of prioritization is the hardest part of product management. And, and fundamentally, that's what, you are as a, as a product owner you are a prioritization machine so, so you need to take those inputs and decide what to do you've got a finite resource so, so talking to customers is, is you've got to be careful to not just end up using that feedback to build lists of features your, your customers will tell them they'll tell you all day long what they want but often they're telling you at that point in time this is what i want so they might be doing something and you're you're watching them use your product and they'll be like hey wouldn't this be useful wouldn't this be useful and we all do that day to day we do that um it's about listening to that understanding why they want that how it impacts their job to be done um listening to enough users within a company to understand is that something common am i going to get uh is that just going to help one person or is it going to help everyone how much is it going to help them um and then doing that across your entire customer base and understanding what are the common threads. Um, and yeah, you've got to solve some specific problems. You can't just solve the, the general things that everyone wants. That sounds counterintuitive. People think, hey, I need to do the thing that everyone wants. But then you end up with a product that doesn't help anyone. It, it, it's 50% complete mm -hmm. for everyone. But that prioritization right. process is about really understanding that the customer and sometimes challenging them and sometimes saying hey you said you want this but actually I, it sounds like you want this and um and it's also what they don't say and and that's where talking to buyers is really helpful it, it always amazes me you can talk to, to the users all day long and the, the managers and 
and, and get a perception of what's going on within a customer. But then you go talk to the buyer and the buyers just come at it from a completely different angle and, and they right. surprise you. Um, and they're ultimately the ones who are probably influencing the decision to a greater degree to buy or not to buy. So importantly, you get both sides. Well, let's transition then to the commercial side of, of the relationship because there's another group here that are, I would imagine, constantly bringing back ideas from customer conversations. And uh, typically, they, they take the shape of uh, sales teams struggling to sell the existing product and coming back and saying, Matt, if only the product did this, we think, you know, it'd be so much easier to sell. I, I take it you've come across that challenge. Yeah. And if so, how do you deal with it? <laughs> and, and this comes down to, to, to time scales of operation. Sales teams have very high frequency turnaround of, of interaction. Um, and we, we have to recognize that, that if you're an AE and you're trying to drive a uh, an expansion or a renewal, that's the only thing that matters to you. And that's the thing you're working on today at this point in time. Tomorrow, it's going to be completely different. It's going to be maybe a new customer with a new set of, of requirements. So recognizing that that sales teams work on a different cycle time. Whereas I, I work on a, a 12 month cycle time, our engineers work on a two week cycle time. So um, yeah, how, how do we deal with that? It's about number one, understanding and getting close to their customer or to their prospect and being part of their conversation. So I, I sit on conversations with our, our, our sales team all the time. I sit in all sales demos that I can get to because I want to hear what people are asking for. And and I think just the sales team knowing that I'm there and knowing that I'm listening, that helps because they don't feel that they have to to um, persuade me from, from zero. They, they, they know I've got that background. And I think that helps. I think salespeople want to be heard. Um, but then it's about just having really um, – honest business focused conversation with that sales team not not the technical conversation but the business conversation of hey you've asked for this but from from the other prospects you have we're hearing this this and this and this is the reason why out of these three things we can't do all of them what would you do ask this, ask those aes what they do understand from them how the prioritization uh, let them be part of that conversation and often that will come up with a, a a completely different solution. We'll come up with something that we could actually do instead that satisfies um, um, across the board. Um, and also saying no, just saying no. Sometimes I just have to say no. And, I, and I've got an AU who's got a great account opportunity and only if we did this, and it's just like, sorry, just I've, I've, I was there, I was in the demo, I was in that meeting, or, or you've told me about it, but we are not going to be able to do that. Here's why. I'll, Give, give them the reasoning, but we are not going to be able to uh, go do something different. Nine times out of ten, yeah, they'll be disappointed. But but just having that 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 finite response of no, go find something else, they can move on. It's quite telling, I think, within sales teams if if people are obsessed about that feature. So I suppose that if you're getting those requests over and over again, then it's time that you look at that feature more closely and see really is it something that needs to be reconsidered for involvement but it it can't be an individual asking for that and then changing direction of the product um, and equally on the sales side if you're a sales leader if you find your sales team are constantly harping on about the same problem 
you know, it's up to the sales leader to bring it to the group, to the management group, because the way that we worked between sales, marketing and product, when we worked together at DiffBlue, that was a really strong team. You know, we had really robust conversations around the, where we were focusing our efforts on a commercial front and where the product was heading. I mean, is that how you align product and sales teams? Can you perhaps talk a bit about that? I don't want the head of sales to have to come to me with these things because that means I'm already too far away. So I see myself right. at this stage, whilst we are small enough that I can spend my time embedded with the sales team to an extent, I, I want to be hearing this stuff um, at that higher frequency. And, and just because everyone's asking for it doesn't mean it's the right thing to do either. Um, but but understand what people um, are asking for. Why are they asking for it firsthand? That's when the system is working. And um, But if it takes an escalation to the head of sales to to have to do to change tack then something's gone wrong at that point and i think at, at right this stage of company there's too many extra people in that flow of information there might be the aes talking to the the uh, cro talking to the head of product who's talking to the head of engineering you, you you've got to be more granular about that so got to be more granular in the conversation um in terms of um taking each voice of each prospect one at a time and listening to that but you've got to have that very strong relationship with your your CRA CRO to then decide what to do so your CRO and you then are not having conversations where they're escalating to you about we should do this it's more of conversations about what do we do next do we go after this group of prospects or this group of prospects um or at this stage, you're growing your company one account at a time. So maybe it's just let's be super focused on this one prospect that could change the world for us, and let's be super successful for them. Um, but that that requires, I'm sure you can imagine um, where where it can go wrong. But it went really well with us. Is that depth of relationship so that we together are deciding um, how to move forward? Yes, and, and also having those three different views of the market, of the customer relationship, of the product. I mean, when we worked together, we had strong voices in marketing, sales, and you obviously in product. Uh, and it was a really good way for us to work together because we could have really uh, deep conversations and challenge each other about directions, assumptions. I mean, it's one of the things that I took away from my time of working with you and the team at DiffBlue is that too often startups operate in silos. And if we're really going to win at discovering and building on product market fit, so whether it's early user market fit, later product market fit, we have to shift our mindset about how we operate as a team. Now, you and I have spoken a lot about this, and I'm really keen to explore this concept of, you know, is, there a, is, there, is it a go-to-market team approach or is there even uh, a different mindset here that says, you know, how do we build a product market fit team that it's bringing together this product view, this sales view, and this marketing view? Um, and, you know, did that work for you? Yeah, what are your views on that? So product market fit is ultimately what, what everyone wants. 
uh, to to say they've achieved. Um, and people, I I I don't hear people talking enough about product market fit, challenging each other on how close are we to product market fit, defining what that even means for your your product and your company, um, writing down what do we believe our market is. For us at DiffBlue, is it all software developers? Is it specific types of software developers? Is it specific types of company? Defining that market and, and then saying, well, very honestly, where are we fitting into that market and how are we prioritizing that that fit? And, and then also recognizing when the market's shifting underneath you. Um, and, and how do you know when your market's shifting? Well, that that you're hearing from your, your sales team more than anyone. You're hearing that language change. Uh, your marketing team is changing the way that they're messaging the product. They're seeing others changing their messaging. Understanding when your market is shifting is is critical. And we've been through that in the last 12 months with, with uh, large language models, chat GPT, et cetera, that the market has shifted. But having that triad of product sales and marketing on one face and hearing what's happening out there in the wild, being part of that conversation out there in the wild. And then as a product person being able to turn around where I have another triad, which is myself, the CTO and the head of engineering to then talk about how to, to action what we're hearing out in the wild. And then with a really great CEO above to help guide that. But it's those for me, it's those two triads. And I think a lot of companies, you said it earlier, the silo is generally seen that product and engineering are one silo and sales and marketing are another. That's that's it's not. It the product person, the product function is in the middle, and it's those two triads. The the product sales and marketing triad on one side and the product engineering CTO triad on the other. Yeah, and that's how you get the best of of, of everybody. What's it um, been like selling uh, an AI product in a market where it just went absolutely bonkers for <laughs> AI after, you know, you, you were talking about this years before it became popular. Um, mm. How have you seen things shift and what was it like? Take us back to the early years of selling you know, emerging technologies that people either didn't fully understand or believe could deliver versus what it's like today. Emerging tech i've always worked in emerging tech and it's always exciting because you get to tell the prospect about it the first time really you're the first person to ever explain it to them most of the time and you get to teach them about the tech and then you get to show them the tech and then they get to try the tech themselves um as part of a proof of value type process and that's really valuable because you are very close to that prospect. You're very close to that buyer. Um, and you can help steer the conversation. They can they help steer you as well, as, as we were saying. Um, so the early days were very much quite that intimate relationship with your, your um, buyer, a lot of open-mindedness, a lot of skepticism as well, but, but this is where the... the, the the, the proof of letting people try your product comes in. Um, whereas this, this last 12 months, people are educated left, right, and center about AI. And AI is everywhere. And every time someone says they have an AI product or they're doing something with AI, 
I do. I glaze over. Um, it's nine times out of ten, it's bolting GPT four onto your current product and saying I have an AI solution. I mean, I've I've seen that go really wrong. Um, but the problem is, my prospect base of, of customers is they are polluted in their knowledge by so much noise from the market about what is AI, what are the risks of AI, what are the limitations of AI. And for us, we use a completely, we're, we're, we're night and day um, different from from the large language model world. That my task, I've got to re-educate these people and I've got to, I've got to get them to pay attention to me. I've got to, they're glazed over and I've got to remove that and I've got to, I'm starting 10 steps back now. Um, but that's not a bad thing. It's really to help challenge me and challenge the product um, to to be able to message the product uh, product value more clearly. But the opportunity of this is, I've, I've given you one side of it here. I've given you the downside. There, there's obviously an upside of, of the last 12 months. But there's never this... I guess there's never a period where it's absolutely, you know, rolling in the clover because everybody's like, yes, I'm bored into this. Because as you said, you've got to educate them that this is a, a different form of AI. Um, I mean, you understand the concept that AI does the work for you. Um, and I think that's really where AI and, and these large language models are heading. Um, I've heard some um, great, great talks from uh, venture capitalists recently talking about really the value is going to be when these products do the work for you. And that's kind of the work that you've been doing with DiffBlue. I mean, DiffBlue writes the code, you know, identifies uh, problems in the code that you've written. Um, and that's doing some, that's carrying some of the weight for you. So we're, we're, rather than bolting AI onto your product, which is absolutely, uh, you've got to have an AI strategy now, otherwise you're being kind of left behind. Um, where do you see it going? Where do you see the use of AI and helping us do these jobs rather than just being nice tricks if you like, or toys to play with. Where do you see that going? So AI can do for modern uh, modern life what the industrial revolution did for for um, for industry. It's about automating those vital but tedious processes. They don't have to be complex processes. And I think this is where people get stuck: is they think AI has to do the complex things. We don't spend our life doing complex things all day, every day. We spend, I, I spend um, uh, maybe 10, 20% of my day thinking about really complex stuff. The rest of the time is tedious, vital uh, activity that is ripe for automation. So number one, I think it's about identifying what AI is going to deliver most value um, for. So. I want AI to help me do those vital but tedious things. A colleague of mine uses AI to, to schedule her day and to make sure that she can get all of her jobs done. It's not actually doing those jobs, but it's helping her understand how am I going to use that big, beautiful brain of hers to do those complex things. Um, that's a really good use of AI because we're using it to do uh, a vital but tedious task to enable us as humans to do them far more complex things. And that's what Diff Blue's about is we automate the vital but tedious tasks for developers so they can focus their time on, on the super complex things. So number one, it's about identifying where is the biggest value to your users and therefore biggest value to you as a company. It's in 
um, automating those tasks that are taking the majority of your time because we do not spend our lives doing complex things every minute of the day. The problem is a lot of companies have run at the hardest problems and failed. And that's where we've eroded the confidence in AI. And that's where we see the industry has taken some steps back in some ways that people now distrust AI. They, they distrust its ability to be correct. Um, and we're going to have to build that back up. And I think what we're going to see is we're going to see that be built back up actually by automating the simpler, vital, but tedious tasks rather than going after the, the, the super complex things. Yeah. So, so if you think about farming, for example, so I, I come from, from background up in the, in the north of England. And when we think of where AI can play a role in farming, we think about the super sexy problem of um, how do we automate the farmer driving the tractor? So they've got this 100,000 pound tractor that's ripe for automation. Let's put some GPS in there. Let's put a super big computer in there. Let's put loads of cameras in there. And we've now made it such that the farmer doesn't have to sit there all day driving that tractor. That is a sexy AI problem, but that's that's something that you really do need a human for. It's safety critical. It's complex organizing. How do you drive around this, this field harvesting crops? The problem that we still cannot solve in agriculture is the what is seemingly simple problem of just picking vegetables. So you think about a, a farm that has acres and, and acres and acres of of cabbages, lettuces, um, delicate crops that have to be picked by hand. Companies are are still struggling to automate that. It employs far more people than that one farmer in that one tractor. It, dozens and dozens of workers in that field all day, every day, back-breaking work, picking, uh, picking vegetables. It's a hard problem to solve, ripe for AI, um, and is ultimately going to be far more valuable to the agricultural uh, industry um, because the problem is a much larger scale and is... Um, is going to deliver much higher productivity, much more higher profitability for that farmer than the farmer sat at the edge of his field in his deck chair watching his driverless tractor um, go around (laughs) his field for him. So AI is about automating vital but tedious tasks at the moment. One day, yeah, we'll, we'll probably get there. But right now, that's not where we're at. That's the opportunity, yeah, um, and that's certainly where the success that, that Div Blue has found. You know, it was doing that job of writing code specifically around um, certain types of code that you know is, wasn't a really sexy, exciting job. It was just something that people don't enjoy doing, and you can automate a lot of that, and and also reduce the risk, the human error risk that tends to creep in because machines are or technology is often you know it, it doesn't fail in the same way that we do when we're making decisions not always but sometimes (laughs) good okay so matt just while we wrap up this conversation around product and the relationship with sales and dealing with customers what's some of the advice that you could give uh, entrepreneurs who are wanting to strengthen the relationship between their engineering product and commercial and marketing teams how how might they go about aligning that group around the product mission 
that, that you're so familiar with? That's a really great question. And, and it's very, um, it's very simple to, to, for me to say this, but, but it's very complex to implement. It all come, it has to come from the top. It has to, to be something that you do as a leadership team. And, and it's really about building those two triads. It's about building the um, product leadership team, that team who are accountable for specifying what you're going to build and for building it and making it uh, technically successful. So that's the, the product engineering CTO relationship. And then building the front end triad, which is the product sales marketing relationship where you together are accountable for taking what has been built and marketing it, messaging it, um, selling it, measuring that success, measuring product market fit, adapting your definition of your market, adapting your definition of success, bringing all that intelligence back into the product and feeding that back to that product leadership team and vice versa. So as a product person as an or, or as any entrepreneur having that that um those two sets of relationships so taking it from a group of silos to having two very strong teams coupled with product in the middle um it's it's going to keep you connected between your users and adoption of your product all the way through to the engineers building it. And you will see the language change. As I said before, you'll hear your mm. engineering teams talking about customers and talking about uh, users and jobs to be done. And you'll hear your uh, marketing team, your sales team talking about the reasons why things are done in a certain way, equipping them to question their prospects more intelligently um giving them more to take into their jobs to become better at what they do um your aes having much deeper richer conversations with their buyers because they understand the 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 problem uh, in more depth so yeah it's about building an organization that has has to come from the top it has to be something that you your ceo is is driving but building a, a a great culture of um, of building a product and selling a product, um, and, and then how you manage that product. I think that's the key takeaway here: is that we are building products to solve customer needs. Um, it's not siloed thinking in we've got to hit a revenue target or we've got to sell enough seats or enough whatever uh, products. To, to reach the next milestone. And in very early stage companies, and by that, I mean, those certainly under 10 million in revenue need to take the time out to have those discussions between the two groups that you, you talk about. If you're a product owner in the middle, he's got those uh, two groups either side of them, but the product and the commercial team being sales and marketing also having that conversation. And you've got to take time out of the day to do that. Because it's very easy, isn't it? You get wrapped up in what you've got to do on a day-by-day basis. And I don't know about you, but the weeks absolutely fly by. And before you know it, there's another year gone. But you've got to take time to do that. that, that that's the key takeaway for me. Definitely. You've got, to, you've got to invest in 
thinking about what you're doing as a product solving a problem, not not just why are we not hitting our sales targets or, or how can we um, build this super complex piece of technology. It's getting everyone wrapped around how do we build a product that people want to buy and therefore your revenue problem uh, uh, becomes a, a an adoption problem. Great advice. Thank you, Matt. Really, really helpful. Um, I'm going to change gears slightly here before we wrap up. We have a bit of a tradition where I do a few quick fire questions uh, that obviously have a little bit of a behind startup lines theme. Um, I know that you're really interested in the, the military. We've talked a lot about uh, our interest in those areas together. So if you're up for this, um, should we dive in and see what you have to say about these? Sure. Go for it. Good. Okay. So the first one really is around building a product. And and when you are building a product and you're looking at solving the problem, the question is, what's the best way to go about that in the early days? Use a howitzer or use a sniper rifle to actually get to the specific product versus trying to bombard an air in the hope of finding a product? Howitzer or sniper rifle? Sniper rifle. Finding your problem and solving that problem really, really, really well. Next question, when you are testing that product, when you're out there testing it, what's the best way to test it in the market? Is it is it a quick commando raid where you get some information, come back and make changes? Or is it much more of a campaign mentality You know, that it takes a bit of time for you to learn before you can really make any adjustments? What do you prefer, commando raid or campaign mentality? It, it, it's campaign. You need people to use your product for long enough that they start to expose the problems. If you just go on a raid, you're not going to get that depth of understanding. And any indication of how long a a decent amount of time working with the product is for for that feedback to be meaningful? People have to be using your product day in, day out for for weeks, a minimum of weeks before you're really going to understand, does it help them? Because you need to know, are they coming back every day or do you see their usage drop off? over time yeah that's one of the keys that i don't see uh, technology companies doing enough which is looking at the data behind how the product's being used simple things like who's logging in and using it on a daily basis it's such a great indicator and it often only becomes an issue when renewals come around and then they look at it and go well we didn't really take advantage of it yeah um, Mm -hmm. and we've got to head that off nice and early last question it's about competition so when you're looking at competition and you're gathering intel on that competition, how important is that when it comes to influencing direction of the product? It's important to be very familiar with your competition and to understand them, know your enemy. Um, but just because they do something doesn't mean that you have to do the same. It's often through through doing something different. It's differentiation. We're, we're doing something different and we're taking a different tack um, that puts us out uh in front of the competition so yeah being aware of them but i certainly don't sit there um, worrying about competition all day i i worry about if we build a great product it will uh, i think that's such a valuable lesson in in any part of the business that you work in this idea that you have to run your own race i think particularly with what we see and social media and how people or competitors seem to be doing better you've just got to run your own race um, I think keeping an eye on what's going on in the market and understanding 
you know, any uh, iterations that, that you can even borrow or pinch. Yeah, if it makes sense, but you've got to run your own race. Matt, absolute pleasure talking to you. I um, really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, where can people uh, find out more about you um, and get in touch if, if they have any questions? Um, so I, I, I hang around on, on LinkedIn. Um, so Matthew Richards, Diff Blue, uh, you'll find me on there. And yeah, feel free to, to give me a shout. If you um, ever want to talk product, I, uh, I, I'm always up for uh helping uh, people understand more about this world and also so i can learn what other ways are there for me to do things so yeah um look me up Matt, thanks very much for your time today it's been lovely talking to you all the best with diff blue and look forward to seeing you again soon thanks for having me wasn't that a great conversation matt is one of the strongest product owners i've ever had the opportunity to work with His combination of product and commercial acumen, aligned with his willingness to get stuck in, embodies exactly what is needed in building any successful business. If you enjoyed our conversation, please rate the episode and share it with a friend. Keep innovating, keep building, and let's keep this conversation going. This is Phil Guest, signing off from Behind Startup Lines. Over and out.